Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In preparing for my annual viewing of one of my favorite movies, Somewhere in Time, starring Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour, I pulled Richard Matheson's original novel off the shelf to reread the last chapter. You know, a lot of books that get transitioned to the big screen come out the other end uh, barely recognizable. And there's some difference in this, in this 1979 time travel romance, which in this case are a little more emotionally satisfying in the film version. I still haven't watched the movie again yet, but it, it got me thinking about some of the other books that the author has, has written, some of his stories, many of which you'd probably recognize from seeing them on uh, either the, in the theater or uh, for television shows uh, that they became. Uh, not all of them uh, romantic. Uh, the Incredible Shrinking Man, for one. Uh, Hell House, story of a haunted house. Uh, that episode of Twilight Zone, where a neurotic uh, passenger played by William Shatner can't get anybody to believe that there's a, a little evil creature on the wing, ripping it to shreds to crash the plane. Uh, I Am Legend, which became uh, first The Omega Man, starring Charlton Heston, and then was remade later on um, into a film called I Am Legend, starring Will Smith. What Dreams May Come, uh, made into a film of the same name starring Robin Williams. In that book, the main character begins by dying. You have to wonder sometimes, don't you, where authors get their ideas from. I bet they get asked that a lot. Uh, that last one is a, is a work of fiction, but the author included eight pages of bibliography, the result of his own extensive research into what people think happens when we die. Uh, unfortunately, the Bible isn't in the list, uh, and you'll figure that out right away. But it's a fictional story. It's not a, a theological treatise, though. It's a, and it, it's probably a good thing, because it seems just about everybody uh, gets to go to uh, the good place, uh, for just about any reason other than denying a good place exists. And that place becomes whatever you want it to be. It's really a, a blend of sorts of all kinds of false religions and, and philosophies. But, you know, if you can get past that part, that's not a bad story. I mean, I could fix it. Just don't believe any of what you read. Most people really would like to think that there's some place after this life, even if they haven't yet met Jesus. And at least a few of them probably hope there isn't. Those maybe be the ones that uh, uh, got coal in their stockings last Christmas. People want to embrace the idea that we'll experience happy reunions with people you know and love. And that's all true about heaven. But it doesn't exist just because you made it up. God did. The main character in the book gets a full life review when he dies. Backwards, beginning with his death, working back toward his birth. He remembers every single thing he ever did and every single thing he ever said, and he's embarrassed by it, as we probably all would be. Now, the Bible really doesn't say much about a life review, that kind of thing. It is a judgment, but we're not going to be embarrassed because by faith in Jesus, all the bad things will have been covered by his own shed blood, forgiven, forgotten, uh, deleted, if you will, or left on the cutting room floor. But that doesn't seem to stop people from claiming to have had them after a close brush with death. In 2007, Paul Sims wrote an article for The New Yorker. He said, they say that your whole life flashes before your eyes when you're about to die, and I'm here to tell you that it's true. Paul fell off a sheer uh, uh, face of a granite mountain, not while he was climbing, but while he was taking a long hike, 950 feet straight down. 
He wrote, you notice the oddest things when you're 950 feet above the ground, having just stepped off the business side of a man-killing mountain. The things like uh, lichen and the almost laughable ineffectiveness of wind resistance. I realized I was about to die, and that's when my whole life flashed before my eyes, but sped up. Now, Paul survived his fall, but sadly, one person in a group of naturalists examining lichen at the base of the cliff wasn't so lucky. See, Paul landed on him. Uh, totally wrong place, wrong time. They're called LREs, or Life Review Experiences. They're interesting because people tend to be so fascinated with what happens in the moments just preceding death and in the moments right after death. And it makes you wonder if your life in Christ now suddenly flashed before your eyes, would it look more like a feature film or a short subject? The point, I guess, is that even if, if there's a chance of that happening, it's probably best to make sure you have plenty to watch. In our lesson from the book of Acts this morning, Stephen gets a flash just before he dies. Only it's not a flash of his life here on earth. It's more like a, a coming attraction of what his life will be like in heaven in the very near future. You see, Stephen is being stoned to death. Stephen's an interesting guy. And this is one of my favorite sections of scripture, except they had to cut a big chunk out of it because it really spans a little bit of chapter 6, all of chapter 7, and then just a smidgen of chapter 8. It's really kind of like a Cliff, Cliff Notes version of the entire Old Testament and our salvation story. The extended version would be well worth your time to sit down and read this afternoon. Now, by this time in Acts, the fledgling Christian church is growing by leaps and bounds. The believers in Jerusalem alone number five, over 5,000. And that's just the men. Acts chapter 4. The Spirit's everywhere, turning people's hearts to Jesus. The apostles are performing miracles. People are actually selling their possessions and pooling their resources in order to support the, the ministry and the people that it serves. The majority are giving generously. They're giving without reservation. But all this good news created a problem. The apostles, Jesus' closest disciples, are so busy that they just can't keep up with taking care of everyone's needs. And then when a minority of, of Greek Jews complain they're being neglected in favor of the others, the apostles come to the conclusion that they need help. So in order to spend time in their own ministry of prayer and preaching, they decide to raise up seven deacons. The new guys are tasked with seeing to the care of people's worldly needs, especially the widows. Among them is a young man named Stephen, described as a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. The apostles prayed over them, they laid hands on them to commission them, and then they were off and running. Now, their ministries quickly expanded way beyond waiting on tables, though. Deacon Philip would soon become the church's first evangelist, and Deacon Stephen, its first martyr. In fact, Stephen was, was soon doing great wonders and signs of his own, and this high visibility caught the eye of, of some local synagogues. This particular group of Jews had a big problem with Stephen's spirit-led ability to handle the scriptures. Whenever they would confront him in faith-based discussions or debates about his message, they would come up short. So they, that made his religion a threat to theirs. Now, Judaism and Christianity could coexist, but they can't both be right and true at the same time, can they? Even great numbers of priests were becoming Christians. That was huge. The priests of the old religion were generally more interested with just maintaining. When the priests of a, a religion opposing Christianity begin to give way, that, 
that old religion is likely to fall. They recognized that danger and it frightened them. So the temple leaders conspired with, with informers to go out and deliberately distort Stephen's message. They spread lies about what he was saying. It wasn't long before he was accused of the capital offense of blasphemy against God. The people they stirred up against him got the attention of the temple elders and the scribes, and Stephen was arrested and brought before the 70-member ruling council called the Sanhedrin. This was the same group that had condemned Jesus and orchestrated his death. Now, it was like, kind of like the road to Calvary all over again. The same Jewish nation that had rejected the Son of God was now rejecting the Spirit of God, filling Stephen with God's truth by using the same trumped-up charges, the same kinds of false witnesses, and the same use of an angry mob that uh, by, the, by the end of the day, they ended up committing the same lawless murder of an innocent man. They said, we heard him speak against this holy place and the law of Moses. We heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and that Jesus will change the customs Moses gave us. When they looked at Stephen to see what difference their accusations would make, uh, Luke, the author of Acts, uh, tells us that his face looked like the face of an angel. Are these things true, the high priest asks? And Stephen launches into a detailed history of their people and their on-again, off-again relationship with God. He goes all the way back to Abraham, revered as the father of the Hebrew people, and how God called him out of Ur to a new land that he would show him. And when he got there to Canaan, he promised that one day, one day Abraham's descendants would enjoy this fertile land as their own. This was back when Abraham was already in his 90s, and he and his wife had never even had any children to make good on on some kind of descendant promise, but they would. Before they could take possession of this inheritance God was keeping for them, there would be 400 years of mistreatment and slavery, which turns out to be the Egyptian years. Then God would punish their punishers, and he would rescue them and bring them into the promised land. And he relates the whole story of Joseph being rejected and sold into slavery by his jealous brothers and how he rose to power in Egypt and ended up becoming his people's savior during a famine year. And he tells again the familiar story of Moses and his improbable rise to power in that land and how he was raised up by God to be their deliverer and how from the beginning they continually rejected him. Stephen relates instance after instance, all well-known stories to his accusers, all the stories of how time after time they had hardened their hearts against God and rejected him along with his prophets and deliverers when all he was trying to do was save them and teach them to be his own, to rescue them from themselves. And on it goes, right up to the story of God finally sending his own son, Jesus, and how they'd even turned against him and betrayed him and murdered him. Same pattern, same story, except now Stephen was in their sights. They were furious, literally sawn or cut to the heart, it says. They were grinding their teeth against him, the Bible says. That's a word picture that you can't unsee, isn't it? Grinding their teeth against him. They're already at the tipping point. And now God gives us this whole scene, a little nudge. Stephen hasn't been in a shouting match with them. Remember, he, was, uh, he had the face of an angel. So he was simply telling their story the way it really happened, laying it all out so... So the, the truth of the story and the truth of their guilt couldn't be missed. Now, by having to face their own history, they were really being spoon-fed a, a heaping helping of the law. 
Their guilt as a sinful people was undeniable, but their hearts were hard as a petrified log. Powerful words, but not enough to save this man of God. And Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, it says, looked up to heaven and he saw Jesus. Behold, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now he's got them screaming at him in anger, covering their ears so they don't have to listen anymore because it all strikes home and the truth of it hurts. And these 70 supposedly solemn, respectable rabbis rush him and they drag him out of the city to the place of stoning. Another messenger of God, another chance at forgiveness and salvation, shoved aside and destroyed. One more time, their turbulent history with God was repeating itself. And the stones, stones begin to fly. Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Why Jesus? Because he saw him alive at God's right hand. He was proclaiming the deity of the risen and ascended Christ. And if Christianity was true, then Judaism was dead, abolished, irrelevant. As the stones being hurled at him brought him to his knees, he cried out, cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he fell asleep. Bible language for he died. And yet not dead, but alive on another shore. Now he was with his Lord in heaven. His battered body, not so much, but Stephen lived on. Now, he didn't get a life review. What Stephen got was a, a life preview. He saw what Jesus promises his disciples in our gospel lesson this morning. It's the night of their last Passover together, the night that he would be betrayed, arrested, uh, tried, convicted, and the next day crucified for sins he didn't commit. It was scandalous, but there was a purpose to go with the promise. See, he died for our sins in our place so that by faith in him we might be forgiven and made right with God, a perfect fit for that perfect place he was going to prepare for us all. I go to prepare a place for you, he told them. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. There where I am, you may be also. What a word of comfort and assurance that is when, when death touches our lives. That as the last enemy, death, overtakes us or someone we love, uh, we don't have to worry about watching a replay of our earthly life with all its faults and, and its mistakes and its regrets. And we don't have to worry about what comes next. We already have a place prepared for us in heaven where Jesus has come from and where he returned to. According to God's word, we'll see Christ himself standing by, ready to receive us. What a word of promise that is. And while Stephen had every earthly right to call down revenge and curses on those who were ending his life much too soon, his last words, like Jesus' words from the cross, were words of grace. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Like Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Wouldn't it be something if we could all die with a word of forgiveness in our, on, our, on our lips? What a powerful story this is. What if that moment came for you to meet Jesus face to face today or tomorrow? You know, you can look forward to it. Through faith, God has already blessed you, for Jesus' sake, with the greatest gifts in the history of the whole world. Forgiveness, acceptance, meaning, value, new life, 
and eternity in heaven. Stephen's story makes us want to do our own life review, doesn't it? A life that's a gift from God. It makes us want to ask ourselves, what have I done with it all? What might I have done better? What could I begin doing better? If your life in Christ suddenly passed before your eyes, how long would it take? Would you see yourself passing it on? Paying it forward because of all Christ suffered for us? Or would you see your faith held close to the vest, clenched as tightly as old Ebenezer Scrooge hang, hung onto his purse before that, that fateful Christmas Eve? Now, Steve, Stephen didn't have a whole lot of time to create his life in Christ movie. He was a relatively new believer. All of them were. But what he did with the time he had changed the world and continues to inspire people even today. It still uh, works to change people and it still works to change the world. You don't have to be a seasoned Christian to make a difference. Stephen never got to see the impact that his life and faith inspired death would make, but we do. And maybe you'll never get to see every difference your life will make or the impact your faith will have on someone down the road. But like his, uh, it could change the world. Even if it only changed one other person, inspired one other human being to accept God's gift of faith and receive forgiveness and eternal life, uh, it would certainly change theirs. And wouldn't it all be worth it? It would. It always is. Amen. Now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.